A question that I have for you today as we start out is, is it the duty of every Christian to live their life on mission? Is it the duty of every Christian to live their life on mission? It's a question that I posed three or four weeks ago on a Wednesday night, a question that I posed to the uh, Guatemala mission team as we were um, serving there in Guatemala. But it is, is it the duty of every follower of Christ, every uh, little Christ, every Christian to live their life on mission? A short answer that I want to give to that answer, and I'm going to explain more today, is ultimately yes. And I would even argue that, uh, and I would even possibly debate of whether you're actually a Christian or not if you're not living your life on mission. And what I mean by that is, are you sharing the gospel, are you sharing the euangelion, the good news of Christ with those that are around you? Whether it's in Varasta, whether it's in uh, Washington, D.C., or whether it's in Beirut, Lebanon, are you sharing the good news with those around you? Are you on mission for God each and every day with your friends, your coworkers, classmates, family, whoever it may be? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to be looking at the mission of God and how God sends his people out into the outermost parts of the world. And what I want to do is I want to go through uh, the book here of Genesis, and I want to start from the very beginning, and I want to show to you and prove to you how God, even from the very beginning, was a God, a sending God, who was on mission for his people. So turn with me, if you will, and we're going to look in Genesis, and we're going to start in chapter 1. I'm ultimately going to end up in chapter 12, but we're going to hit some verses along the way as I explain this point. But I want to start in Genesis chapter 1, and and probably these verses are familiar with you. Um, You've probably made it through your Bible reading plan, at least through Genesis. Uh, You get to Exodus, and then by Leviticus, you're you're done, right? About the same time that you're done with your exercising uh, for the year, uh, you're done with your Bible reading as well. You get lost in the law, right? That's typically what happens. So a lot of these are probably going to be familiar, but I want to give you just a a different take uh, on some of them that maybe you have not heard before so that you can see it in a little bit different light. So we're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 to start off with. Uh, If you do not have a Bible with you, there's a black Bible right there in front of you, a pew Bible. Uh, Please uh, feel free to use that. And if you do not own a Bible at all, uh, you are free to take that Bible home with you as a gift from us here at Perimeter Road as we continue to try to purify the church and to penetrate the culture. So Genesis chapter one, just there in the very beginning, right? 27 and 28. I want to start with verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right there in the very beginning, we see see there that we are what? We are created, male and female, in the what? In the imago dei, right? Dei being God, imago being image. We are created in the image of God. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, now all of a sudden, we become what? We become representatives, We become ambassadors, the the word that Paul Tripp used uh, in his parenting conference. We become reflections now to the rest of the world, right? We are God's image bearers. So in the same way that a king would take statues and he would strategically place them all over his kingdom to do what? To reflect who what? The sovereign king was. 
God, in the same sense, has made us his image bearers, and he has what? Sent us out into the world to do what? To reflect who the sovereign king actually is. And so if we see here in the next verse, verse 28, what does it say? And God blessed them, and what? And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. You're seeing these verbs, okay, coming up right after he created us, right after he told us we were made in his image. Now you're seeing this what? Be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, have dominion. We're seeing these first commands of God coming onto the scene of what we are called as his image bearers to do. And that's what? To be fruitful, to multiply, and what? To fill the earth. So God is a sending God. And he wants his imago dei to go out and to be sent out into the entire world as direct reflections of what? Who the sovereign king actually is. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now, I want you to notice something in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, as you look to the next page, or you may have to flip. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says something interesting here that you may not recognize just reading it in English. It says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became what? A living creature. Now we know that animals have the breath of life in them as well. We know that people have the breath of life in them. But it's interesting when you read this word in the Hebrew, it's a different meaning, a different connotation to this word. This breath of life that it's talking about that it refers to human beings is actually referring to something greater than the breath of life that is given to animals. God tells animals to what? To be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill, but then you also have the subdue and have dominion as well. But also this breath of life has a connotation to it as well of doing what? Of having morality and having spirituality in a way that animals don't. Now, I don't think anybody in this room struggles with that, but I think in the world today, I think we're beginning to struggle with that. That human beings are what? Greater than animals, right? We've been given a greater responsibility. We have a morality and a spirituality that animals don't have. We've also been given what? Dominion and power, in a sense, over those animals. And so we're called here to be the image bearers, but at the same time, we're given a greater responsibility. But it's funny too, in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, what does it say? The Lord God formed the man out of what? Dust. We're from dirt. May we never forget that as we begin to throw our hair back, look at me, I'm made in the image of God. I'm greater in some sense than everybody else or the animals or whatever. May we never forget that we come from what? Dirt. The Lord God formed you out of the dirt. Romans chapter nine mentions that, the potter and the clay, but also multiple other places within the scriptures. It says we're knit in our mother's womb, by, ultimately by God in the Psalms. So may we never forget that we come from dirt. And the fact that we come from dirt, that shows us that we should what? In one sense, be humble, right? There's a humility uh, that we should have as image bearers of God. But then also we know that we are still in need of certain relationships as people as well. So there's three relationships 
that we still need. One is a relationship with God. He ultimately, he created us. He is our sustainer. But another relationship that we must have is between what? Man and woman. You want to be fruitful? You want to multiply? The only way it's happening is with what? Men and women in a relationship. But another relationship that we must have is with nature. Because think about it. You're not getting your basic needs met if the water, if the land, right, if the shelter, if the food is not provided ultimately by nature. Now, under the umbrella of all of that, God provides that, right, for us. But as human beings who are made in the image of God, we are still, still come from dust, from dirt, and we are still in need of certain relationships. And so as we continue on in Genesis, we're going to see where in Genesis chapter 3, something happens that we're probably all familiar with, right? The fall happens, right? That's when sin enters the world, right? And so Adam and Eve, what do they do? They end up disobeying God and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of the tree. And we see, inner, uh, we see sin coming into the world. And now all of a sudden that image that we have of God now is what? It's marred. It's messed up due to what? Due to the sinfulness in our own lives. Something now where we were supposed to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now all of a sudden, because of the sin that is in our life, we want to do what? We want to turn inward instead of outward. We want to look at what? Look at ourselves instead of look at who? God, right? So we see that happening here with Adam and Eve. What happens? They let their pride get the best of them. They began to look at themselves and think about how they could serve themselves and how they could ultimately could be their own kings and queens. They didn't want to rely on God anymore. They wanted to be self-reliant, right? But we know that we are still in need of what? Of God, right? We have to have God to sustain us, but sin causes us to think that we can what? Sustain ourselves and it turns us inward and not look what? Outward to others. And so we see the fall happening here. Now, something very interesting happens in Genesis chapter three, verse eight. And I want you to look at that with me because I have a little bit different of a translation just through what I've studied here of Genesis chapter three, verse eight. So the fall has happened. They have disobeyed God. They've even covered themselves up with fig leaves. And now we see starting in verse eight, what does it say? It says, and they heard the sound, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So it looks like here in this moment, in this time that God, what does he do? He has come down to his people because he wants to be in relationship with his people. So it's amazing to see that he is coming down in the garden, but it looks like here that he is doing what? that he's sort of just walking, strolling along in the cool of the day. In the midst of the daisies and the lilies, he's just sort of having a nice little stroll in the garden, doesn't it? And most of your little study Bibles and stuff like that down at the bottom will say, well, the reason that God is coming in this way is because he's being very gracious and loving and kind with his people. But I wanna give you a different translation, one that I think is legitimate because typically when God's people sin against God, his reaction is not to come down and walk between the daisies and the lilies and the cool of the garden and just sort of strolling along, is it? God takes sin seriously. 
I'm not saying that he necessarily gives you every single time what you deserve, but he takes it seriously, a lot more serious than we take it in our lives today. And so what's interesting here is another translation for that word cool, the garden in the cool, is the word wind. So let's just say for a second that that word is not cool anymore, but it's wind. And what does it say? In the cool of the day, the word there in the Hebrew is yom. And an Akkadian cognate translation of that word, now what that means, don't ask me, but another translation of that word is storm. So now all of a sudden, instead of God just coming down and walking in the cool of the day in front of the daisies and the lilies, after his creation has disobeyed him for the very first time, and he has every right to absolutely destroy them, right? To kill them. Now all of a sudden he's coming down in what? A wind storm. Whoa. Imagine with me just for a second. And then all of a sudden you see Adam and Eve doing what? Hiding themselves, don't you? Right? It makes a little bit more sense to me, but I'm just arguing this, okay? I'm not the professional when it comes to this. But let's just say that he's coming down in the windstorm. He's coming down to show his judgment now to these people, to Adam and Eve, who've just disobeyed him, who he could still be a loving, just, righteous, kind God, everything that he is, and absolutely destroy them, wipe them out, and start over, and he would still be the same God that he is. But instead, what does God do at that moment and at that time? What does the text say? Verse nine. Oh, there's my favorite word, but. Thankfully, there's a but in verse nine, right? But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, what? Where are you? Or another translation can be, why did you do that? Either translation, I'm okay with either one. Where are you or why did you do that? So what is God doing in the midst of asking that question? What is he doing? He's showing them what? Mercy. Think about it just for a second. They have just disobeyed him. It says, if you eat from this tree, you will surely what? Die, right? Die. But instead, God comes down and he shows himself to them. I say windstorm, you say walking among the daisies and lilies. Either way, he shows himself, reveals himself to his creation. He asks them a question. He's giving them what? A second chance. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting something that you deserve. Not getting something that you deserve. They deserve death at this moment and at this time. But God instead comes down and he asks them a question. Where are you? He's giving them an opportunity to defend themselves. He's giving them an opportunity to explain, even though what? He knows the answer to the question, doesn't he? He knows where they're at at this moment in time because he knows everything, but he's given them a second chance. And it's interesting here because not only does he give them a second chance in the fact that he's asking them a question, but then later on in that chapter, what do we see him do? He also provides a what for them? A sacrifice. Now all of a sudden the fig leaves become animal skins, don't they? And the first sacrifice now comes onto the scene because blood had to be shed because of the sins that were committed. So what is he doing? He's restoring, he's redeeming his people. And then what do we see him do? What does he do? Anybody remember? He sends them out of the garden. So be fruitful, multiply what? Fill the earth, even though you have messed up my image, even though you have sinned against me, 
I'm coming down to you and I'm doing what? I'm restoring you. I'm in a sense redeeming you. I'm killing an animal, shedding that animal's blood for the wrong that you did, and I'm going to do what? Send you out into the world. So we see this restoration happen, but in Genesis chapter four, verse one, we see something else amazing happen. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter four, verse one. What do we see happening there? It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she did what? She conceived and bore a son named what? Cain. So not only does God show his mercy to Adam and Eve after they had sinned, but also he's doing what? Showing what here? He's showing his grace as well. By what? By providing them a son. So what can happen now? The command of what? Be fruitful multiply, fill, can still happen with those sinful fallen people that he has restored and redeemed. And so it's amazing that God is showing us his mercy and his grace and how he is dealing with his people. Aren't we thankful? So thankful that God deals with us in those same ways when we have deliberately sinned against him. We're directly told what not to do, and we do what? We go right back to it and do it. But then as we continue on there in uh, Genesis, we begin to see that the descendants of Noah come onto the scene, and we see that there was the flood. Everybody knows the story, right? Maybe you've even seen the terrible movie um, of that flood. And all of a sudden, what happens now? God saves a remnant, right? And there is only a few that are what? That are chosen. There's only a few that are elected. There's only a few that are left. And that's Noah and his descendants. And they're the ones that get to build the ark and get to survive along with some of the animals as well. And one thing, one note I just want to make before I continue on is that whenever God chooses you or elects you, I want you to know that it's for the very purpose of serving him. Election always has the purpose of serving the one who what? Elected you. But when we see in the New Testament, the Pharisees come onto the scene, they get it all wrong, don't they? They think that they have been chosen by God and all of a sudden they have some greater privilege than everybody else because they have been chosen or they have been elected right by God when they had it all wrong, didn't they? Because election always comes with service, serving the one who ultimately elected you. And so we see Noah and we see his descendants. And in uh, Genesis chapter nine, we see right there in verse one, I'm gonna read that really quickly. Genesis chapter nine, verse one, it says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill the earth. All right, here it is again, that same thing. He's reminding, God's reminding his people to do what? To be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But here in Genesis chapter nine, we only see one family, all right? Well, when we flip over to Genesis chapter 10, we are beginning to see the generations of the sons, okay? These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Ham, the sons of uh, uh, Japheth, the sons of Shem, 
And we're starting to see multiple families in Genesis chapter 10. Well, the question comes to my mind as I'm looking at this is, okay, in Genesis chapter nine, there's one family. In Genesis chapter 10, there's multiple families. Well, now let's go back to Genesis chapter, or let's go to Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, verse one, what does it say? Now the whole earth had what? One language and the same words. Now it looks like we're going back to one family. So how are we describing, how is this happening? Well, I think what is happening here is that between Genesis chapter nine and Genesis chapter 10, it is being explained by Genesis chapter 11, okay? So it's out of sequential order there a little bit, but all it's doing is it's looking back to tell you how there became multiple descendants and multiple families, uh, again, that were spread out. So let's look there at the Tower of Babel, okay? Um, Like I said, another familiar story uh, to the majority of you, but one that I wanna hit on and focus on right here for a second. So look with me, if you will, Genesis chapter 11, and I'm gonna start reading in verse one. Genesis chapter 11, verse one. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Okay, it looks like there's what? There's one people group that is there. And as, uh, and as people migrated from the east, they found, a, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, why are they migrating from the east? It's not difficult, right? Their resources were running out. And so they had to do what? They had to move and find their other resources. So they were like a nomadic people who were going from place to place as their resources uh, ran out and they're going to different places, right? They're doing this whole filling the earth, correct? Well, now all of a sudden, what do we see happening? It says, they went to the land of Shinar and they settled there, verse three. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So what have the people of God, what have they done now? It looks like there's just one people and they're beginning to make a what? A city and do what? And build this tall tower, right? So they're putting walls or taking these bricks and building this wall around the city. Why are they doing that? Are there other people in the land at the time that at least we know about? Who are they protecting themselves from? Are they protecting themselves from animals maybe? From the dinosaurs? Who are they protecting themselves from at this moment in the time? I don't know. But one thing we've got to remember is what does sin do? It turns us what? Inward, right? So why are they creating this city and why are they building this tower? Well, they're building the city because they want to protect themselves, right? And they're building that tower because they want to be able to see over the wall that they just built around the city. Isn't that what kingdoms did back then? But they also tell us what? They want to do what? They want to make a name for who? For themselves. Lest we what? Be what? Dispersed. So look what they were doing here. And this is amazing. They wanted to protect themselves. 
They wanted their safety and security. Even though there wasn't anybody else, at least that we know of, in the known world, they wanted to protect themselves. So they put themselves inside this walled off city and they built this tower so that they could see around them to see if anybody was coming. And then they wanted to make a name for themselves, right? What is your name? It's your reputation, right? So if anybody came up and saw this, they'd be like, oh, look at them. They're so awesome, right? They wanted to make a name for themselves instead of a name for who? God, right? They were called to be image bearers of God. They were called to go and do what? To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. But instead now they're doing what? Let's build this city. Let's protect ourselves. Let's stay where we are comfortable and where we are safe and what is known to us so that we don't have to go out into this scary world where there's no other people at the time, at least we think about, and let's not be dispersed and let's do exactly the opposite of what God has called us to do. That's what sin does in our life, isn't it? Now let's think about this just for a second. Aren't we just like that? As Christians, as people, don't we do the exact same thing? Let me stay where it's safe and comfortable. Let me stay where I'm protected. And no, I don't, I don't wanna go out there, God, because it's scary out there. I might die, God. Let me tell you something. God's priority is not your safety and security, but it's his glory. If that costs you, greatly than it costs you greatly. But what sin does is it turns us inward. It causes us to build bricks around ourselves, to not be sent out to the world and to be safe and protected within the things that are familiar to us. I don't wanna leave something that is known and go somewhere that is unknown. I don't want to leave Valdosta. I don't want to leave my neighborhood. I don't want to leave the security that is there. I want to stay around something that is familiar to me, around my family, my friends, whoever it may be. But no, I don't want to go outside the walls of my church or outside the walls of my house or outside the walls of the city because that's unknown. That's scary. It's the same thing that we're seeing happening here. Now, I know you're saying to yourself, well, Joby, you're from Valdosta. You're exactly right. So when I'm preaching this message, who am I preaching it to? Myself. Because I need to remember this just as much as each and every one of you in here need to remember this. We need to be reminded of the fact that God may be sending us somewhere besides Valdosta, Georgia. But at the same time, we need to be reminded of the fact that God may be sending us what? To Valdosta, Georgia, right? It may not be that all of us in here are called to go to Washington, D.C. or to Beirut, Lebanon, but it may mean that you are called to go to those places. But what sin does is it messes that up, right? It skews that. It makes you want to turn to be safe and to be protected. And let me tell you something. There's nothing wrong with safety and protection. But when those all of a sudden become your idols, when those all of a sudden become things that you worship or things that you're not willing to give up when God has called you to go somewhere else, then it becomes a problem. Because God's priority is not your safety and security, but it's what? His glory. And now all the people who are in the Air Force in here, I'm obviously, I'm not talking to you right now, am I? Right? Right? 
Because you get sent out, what, every three years, four years? You've got to go places you don't know. Some places are the armpit of, of the world. Some places may be great. But the question becomes, in those times, when you do get sent out, are you being used and being sent by God and being used to reflect his glory and to be image bearers of him in that moment, in that time? And so what did God do with these people when they did that? Let's look and let's see. What does it say here? It says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And then verse five, what does it say of chapter 11? And the Lord God did what? He came down to see the city and the tower. Isn't that amazing? They built this tower to the heavens and what did God have to do? Come down to it, right? That's how big our God is. Isn't that amazing? And so, and the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, what? Behold, they are one people and they all have what? One language. And this is the only, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us, there you go, there's the Trinity. Come, let us go down uh, and there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, do we think for a second that all of a sudden every person, when they got uh, their language messed up, now they were, some were speaking Chinese, some were speaking Spanish, some were speaking English? No, I don't think that was the case. I think they went back to a 10-month-old uh, type of language. My daughter is 10 months old. They went back to babbling. Like that. All right. It was funny the other day at the Easter egg hunt, uh, I had my daughter in front of some of the college students and she started sounding sort of like a dolphin. She makes this sort of noise. And so I sort of joked about how I teach her dolphin to sort of explain to me what she needs at that moment in that time. And then I found out later, my wife told me she only does that when she's upset, when she's aggravated. Uh, little did I know, um, but my wife speaks dolphin. Okay, there you go. But I think he made them babble again. I think he made them go back to a childish language to where they couldn't understand each other. And in that moment and in that time that you're babbling, that you're speaking this childish language, who are you going to turn to? You can't communicate with each other, so who are you going to turn to? You're going to turn to the people that are what? The safest to you. The people that what? That you uh, know the most that are your probably what? Blood relatives, right? That are your family members that are closest to you. So now all of a sudden we see being sent out Shem's descendants and Ham's descendants and Terah's descendants. Now they're going in these smaller groups and they're being sent out into the earth to fill the earth. But now they're in smaller groups going and doing this of people that they probably trust the most. So God, instead of coming down and he had the right, every right at that moment in time to do what? to absolutely destroy and to kill his people. But instead we see him what? Restoring, and I say redeeming his people through what? Letting them live and not die and letting them continue to be fruitful and to multiply and to be sent out. If all of a sudden we think that languages are curses, then all of a sudden we begin to think what? That the culture, that the society that they live in, ultimately that the ethnicity that they are, are curses as well. That's why I don't necessarily agree that different languages here are a curse from God. I think they went back to babbling and then later on, they made their own languages from being spread out into these different parts of the earth. 
Because all of a sudden, if you think it's a curse, then you think, well, people who have a different language than me, what? They're cursed, right? They're, they're, they're different than me. I don't like them as much. I'm better than them in a sense. But I don't think that's what was going on here. I think God was redeeming them and restoring them so that they could go out and continue to do what? Fill the earth. Now, it's interesting here as we see Terah's descendants. Terah was the father of Abram, who we know as Abraham. He was called to go to a land called Canaan. And all we know, that's modern day, same area as Israel. Well, he made it about halfway there from Ur. He made it about halfway to Haran. And then it says that he settled there. Okay, so he didn't complete that mission. Instead, Abram picked up that baton from his father and he continued on to the land of Canaan. Now, a question that comes up in my mind is why did God call Abram and, and Terah originally to go to this land of Canaan? What was the significance of this land? Was this the safe place for Abraham to go? Was it? I mean, modern day Israel is not very safe, right? That land has been fought over for thousands and thousands of years. I remember visiting it about 10 or 15 years ago. And if you went into certain towns, you would see big mortar shells in the sides of the walls because the Palestinians just decided to chunk some mortars over one day, right? And so they've been in disputes, they've been in battles, they've been in wars, ultimately their entire existence. Why is that? Well, I think part of the reason that is, and the part of the reason that God sent Abraham there was because of the fact that it is a crossroads for the known world at that time. If you think about it, what? Europe, Asia, Africa, they're all connected right there in some sense, at least by land to what? To that land of Israel. And so if you want to trade on dry land and not go out into the sea, which was chaotic and scary for the people then, if you want to trade on dry land, you've got to go through Israel. And so God was sending Abraham there to be an image bearer to him, to reflect to the entire world of who the sovereign king was, because he knew that they would be passing through that land and going what? To the outermost parts of the known world. But it was not the safe option for Abraham. The safe option would have been what? To stay in Ur. Because God's priority is not our safety and security, but it's what? His glory. I mean, think about it from this way. We talked about the image being marred. We know years and years later, what did God do? God sent his very own son, didn't he? Did he send his very own son to a very safe place? Think about that for a second. What happened to his son? He died the most horrific death possible for the sins that we have committed, didn't he? And we just celebrated his resurrection this past Easter, didn't we? What an amazing, amazing story that is. But God in sending his own son and coming down to be in relationship with his messed up creation and being merciful and gracious to us, he sent him into a place that ultimately would what? Rejecting. That ultimately would what? Killing. That ultimately despised him. He didn't send him to a safe place. 
Instead, he sent him ultimately to what? A cross to die for the sins of the entire world. And so I want you to think about that next time as being made in the imago dei, the image of God. And it may be that God is calling you to go somewhere where you may not be that comfortable going. It may be that God's calling you to go to a Valdosta, Georgia, or to go to a Washington, D.C., or to go to a Beirut, Lebanon. Or maybe that God's calling you to go somewhere else. But don't allow yourself to focus so much on your safety and security. But instead, focus on what? God's glory. And allow him to use you in ways that maybe you would never have been used before. To accomplish his mission of you being the image bearers of him. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much, God, uh, for your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, God, which cuts even to the hardest of hearts, Lord. I pray, God, that you would just help us in this calling that you have given us, in this commission, in this command that you have given us of being your image bearers to the world, God. I pray that, Lord, we have realized that you have recovered us, you have redeemed us through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And it may mean, God, that we have to be sent to places that are not familiar to us or that we may be afraid of, God. Allow us, Lord, to be okay with that. Allow us, Lord, to give us peace in the midst of that, God, but to serve you well as your image bearers, as ambassadors, as reflectors, God, as representatives of the Most High God. May we never forget that you are a God that has commanded us to do that. And may we live in light of that each and every day of our lives. We pray this in your son's precious name through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. Amen.